Welcome to Jack Theology. My name is Dr. Matt Murphy. I'm joined by Dr. Kevin Young. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. A couple things before we dive into some fun content today. This is our last show uh, for the year, for 2022. It's been fun ride the last few months doing this um, and different people we've met and conversations we've had from this. Uh, we look forward to more. Um, and happy new year, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa, Merry Christmas to all. And uh, we're excited. Actually, our first episode after the new year, uh, we'll have our first guest on the show, which is exciting. Um, yeah, big topic, right? Yeah. We talk about women in ministry with Nijay Gupta, uh, who will join us. He just is releasing a new book about it. And he's been researching the topic for a long time. He's academic. He was our one of our professors through our doctoral program, actually my advisor uh, for my dissertation. So very smart man. Um, and I'm, we're excited to bring that conversation to you all. Um, so yeah, and like, subscribe, share, do all of that fun stuff uh, for the pod to help us get the word out about it. Um, so I don't know what we want to call this. I uh, We'll start here. Um, Mixed nuts, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, one of my, uh, this, this is going to be a nice segue. One of my favorite preachers when I was a young pastor was a guy named Matt Chandler. And he used to do a sermon once a year called Little Housekeeping. And he just addressed a plethora of issues. Wait, is this, is this the Matt Chandler? The Matt Chandler. Okay, so it is the Matt Chandler. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, That's a good idea. It's a good idea. Yeah. And, um, yeah, well, I'll start with Chandler. Yeah, so uh, finally, he's yeah he's back, right? Yeah, they finally wrapped up his uh, his vacation for whatever he failed at. Went out we with a standing know. ovation. Came back with a standing ovation. Standing ovation. Uh, for yeah, for he's, something. He still never admitted to anything and more apologized for anything. He apologized. I watched his uh, welcome back party, and he he did apologize. If he led anybody in the church uh, away from Christ uh, while he was gone, um, yeah, that that, that was, was his apology. That was his apology. So, um, okay, you know, I'm sorry if I led any of you down the wrong path while I, you know while I was going through this. But he never said what this was. Um, <clears throat> you know. Never admitted to anything. Never mentioned the other women. Never mentioned how he made his wife maybe feel. Um, yeah, I you so. know I'm not being a pastor. I have a hard time just piling on the pastors uh, without without all the details. Um, I've I've seen way too many circumstances where, in the court of a public opinion, there was a lot of dishonesty that ended up bringing pastors to their needs, knees in situations that, that truly weren't the pastor's fault. In this Chandler one, though, um, something happened. No one's telling anybody what happened, and it just smells bad. Uh, it's it, it. I find it pretty hard to defend the church and the way they handled it and Chandler and the way Chandler handled it. Um, they just... Uh, they just handled it badly. Yeah. From top to bottom. Well, even his whole welcome back speech. So he that's the apology he gave. Um, he could have, if he didn't want to admit to anything, he could have still said, we all have issues in our life that we need to deal with. I'm glad I'm thankful that I was able to deal with sin in my life or, or you know, something and lead the people in repentance if that's what this was about. And that's what they seemed to say it was about. Um, and then he blamed it, which took me back. I don't know if you saw this clip. It went kind of viral, but then he, he kind of seemed to blame it all on his, uh, on his brain cancer he had from, you know, about a decade ago. Really? Yeah. He, he said, well, you know, I went to get scans cause you know, I don't know if you know, I don't have a frontal lobe anymore. Um, and so that was, it was kind of odd. Um, so my takeaways from it was, he did nothing. He admitted to nothing. 
And whatever did happen probably happened because he has no right frontal lobe. So it was fascinating. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's I an thought, argument, but I want to hear that from the church. I mean, if that's what went down, I want the church to say, this is what went down. You know, this is, this is what we're blaming it on. I mean, the silence, the silence it, is deafening. Yeah. It's just like, it just feels like being in part of those, the, that culture for a long time. It, it just, it was just a CYA kind of moment. Um, but if you're just going to go through that, like to cover your behinds, why, why even address it publicly like that then? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if it's such a little issue, um, cause initially it seemed like, well, we're, we're above board and we're going to sh show people how to do this right. Um, but you didn't, No. you didn't show us how to do it right. So I don't know. It just, it just reeked and you may be right. Like it, it's entirely possible. Like nothing happened, but then didn't it say doesn't that. feel like that. Yeah. It doesn't feel like that's, yeah. that's the situation. Um, because of the way the church handled it. Yeah. So it, it smells, you know, ironically enough, he, he probably should have stayed off the old social media while he was on vacation because he's making posts about uh, spending time at the cabin, his cabin, and elk hunting. And <laughs> so people are up in our. I thought you were getting help for your, you know. Yeah, if you're on administrative you, leave, you don't want it to look like you're on vacation. Yeah. And then he, ironically enough, returns for his 20th anniversary at the church Sunday. <laughs> the timing was. Uh... <laughs> Something wasn't it? Uh, just, uh, just hilarious. But you knew they weren't going to go through Christmas without their lead. No, no, not at all. So, I guess that puts a bow on it. Um, For now, you know, I don't. If there's something there, it will come out, or it will happen again. Yeah. Um, it. You know, I this is all speculative, and maybe you know, maybe we're not supposed to do that. But um, I feel like Chandler could be a candidate uh, for for deconstruction um, down the road. I, I could see a guy like him in his role, and just what, knowing some of his story and his journey, um, or maybe he he ends up in kind of a different theological world. Um, especially if he truly did nothing and the elders kind of like expose him in, in, and he is, you know, it'll be interesting to watch. I think, yeah, over the next year or two, I think we'll see. Yeah. Well, and that, that's my point. If, if he really did do nothing, um, and yet they wanted to just pretend as though they were taking it seriously just to be able to move on. Um, if I, if I were Chandler too, I'd be, I, I can't imagine Chandler would allow that. I mean, he controls the church, but, um, there's, there's a possibility there. You know, you're right. Yeah. We'll see. Time and will tell. Yeah. If, if I've learned one thing from Chavijan and the like, if, if it happened once, it will happen again. Very true. Um, <clears throat> so um, so that's one issue to address. Uh, you know, um, I think we said it before when it happened, I think just churches just need to learn to be more authentic about these sorts of things. Uh, even if you don't give all the details, just, it, it did not, it was not authentic at all. It was just very, just kind of normal, uh, corporate ease. And we're, we're a church, we're a family, you know, you're gonna have family conversations, have them. Um, I feel like my experience going through stuff like that, uh, the more honesty you can have, um, the better. Um, of course, you know, I guess the argument against that is I've never been a celebrity or, or led a celebrity church, but <laughs> that might also be an argument against having celebrities uh, and celebrity churches. Celebrity churches. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, churches have a, um, they have a propensity and inclination to hire PR firms, you know, to handle these things. And even a lot of the investigative firms okay. that are out there are third parties um, that are still mostly PR firms to help help the church navigate the waters of that. 
and you know it's it's rare for the churches i think but should become common for churches to, to really take a different to take a different approach to these things and like you said authenticity transparency uh uncomfortably uh is the right path to go you know uh, recently the try guys went went through this um and the way they handled that stands in stark contrast to how the village church handled it. And I think I think there's a different model, and I think the world expects a different model, and the church world should expect a different model for handling these things. Uh, the COIA path is just, it's a boomer path. <laughs> it's institutional, uh, it's, not, it's not relational, it's not, biblical in any place that I see. Yeah, no, that's fair. Um, speaking of the celebrity culture, one of the biggest churches in America was in the news recently. Uh, the, your old stopping grounds and Chandler's old stopping grounds. Yeah. For what? Flying, people. flying drummers, flying drummers. Yeah. That's where I met Chandler. Got to know Chandler. So yeah. Uh, the, the old, the old Prestonwood. Yeah. Um, Six Flags Over Jesus is what they call it <laughs> in, in the Dallas area. That, that that stirred up a lot of emotion uh, from people and what they did and this whole idea of doing church with excellence or do you put on a big production, pretty big show, um, spend all that money. Um, I, I go back and forth on it. Um, I personally lean towards like less production uh, more kind of down to where maybe where Jesus was in his culture. Um, he kind of ran away from those moments. Um, but there is something to excellence. Like um, it stirred a lot of conversation. I, it, it looked pretty cool. I, I'll be honest. I would have, if I lived in the Dallas area, I'd probably go and check it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, yeah. Dallas <laughs> Christmas festival is, is what it's been called. They've been doing it for, what at least two decades, maybe three decades now. Um, you know, I, I, I agree. I, I have mixed feelings having been on staff there, knowing the players, knowing the budgets. I mean, with, you know, tens of millions. I mean, at this point, it's probably hundreds in the hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, budget time. Uh, they charge, you know, people buy a ticket in order to come and the tickets are not necessarily inexpensive. Um, that whole, mo you, you know, it, it's tough for me in, in a couple of ways. First of all, you know, when you're dealing in a mega church and, and Prestonwood is, is probably even in the giga church, you know, mega church doesn't even begin to really describe the size. The numbers, the numbers just are, are different. So it's hard to, when you look at things like staffing or, or janitorial or, or these things, I mean, you're talking in the millions of dollars just for cleaning the facility. Uh, but proportionally, is that spending in line with what a church of 100 or 200 would be spending on the same thing? You know, is, is, is the staffing budget, you know, the same percentage that it would be in, in other churches, no matter the size? Is the percentage spent on missions? Is the percentage spent on worship and events? That, uh, that I don't want to speak to necessarily because I don't know what those numbers are today. What I will say though, is I think that probably this is an indicator that it blew up so big is an indicator that there's been a shift in what the market, and I'll use those terms by market, I mean both the Christian market and the non-believing world. So what the market expects out of churches today is different, I think, than what the expectation was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, when it began, people expected a, a large production. It, it drew people in. There was shock and awe. The more that you did in excellence, the more that you did to um, get people talking, create an energy. It may or may not have brought people back into church for worship services. I don't want to comment on that. But I think what I heard in the response is we're living in a different culture where both the Christian market and especially the secular market expects churches to utilize their resources in different ways. Uh, and so to me, that's the question that Preston would 
and churches who do these large scale attractional productions need to be asking themselves is not so much is is this ethically right or ethically wrong is this morally right or morally wrong but um is 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 this really is this really accomplishing what i want it to accomplish and i think you've got to listen to people's feedback and say this is something that we should probably really look at and say this may not be viable or sustainable long term if our mission is truly to um to reach the unreached and bring people to Christ. Uh, this may not be, was it ever an effective tool? I don't know, <laughs> but let's, let's say it was at one point, I think it's clear that if it's not at all effective anymore, it's days are numbered. Yeah. I mean, I think that you hit on something there. I mean, I, I, let, yeah, let's assume the best that it was, um, entirely um, reaching people and, and effective in that way as it as the hope was um, but that's what happens at institutions over time is is they become well we've always done this right this is what has worked um, and they don't think innovatively anymore right they don't think as a church planner or how are we going to reach this community now they just assume and I've been in those kind of creative team meetings, you know, where you're, you're thinking about that. And that's kind of the attitude. And, um, and you think, you know, the community better than you actually do because you've become so insulated to the success. And so I'm sure, uh, those Prestonwood leaders like, well, this works 75,000 people came, we've made all this money. Right. And, um, and so you, you forget to, well, it, like you said, I, that's a great point. Like, is this actually reaching the people we think it's reaching? Um, and I agree. I don't. I don't really think it is. I think um, it would be healthy to reevaluate that. Um, well, and I think you know this is this is a systemic issue that Prestonwood is facing because because it's Prestonwood that it happened at. I, I have this understanding behind the scenes of what they're facing and what the Dallas market looks like. So, so I feel like I can speak a little bit more, um, educated to, to what they're seeing. Cause I've worked there and just followed them for 20, 20 years, 22 years now. Um, Preston Wood is fighting for survival. Uh, Dallas is a really saturated market for, churches. Uh, Prestonwood was once able to attract people because of size and especially because of location where it was. But the city has grown. The city has moved. Um, The energy and the growth is in areas that are really far away now from from Prestonwood. It's not in the center of, of the action. They have a senior minister who's an incredible speaker, has been an incredible speaker, but is is years away or already in the process of retirement. Uh, They're not going to be able to follow him with anybody who's going to be able to do what he was able to do and sustain that. And so rather than identify what was unique about their style, whether that's a traditional style or, or a large, rather than identify what was unique about them over the last 10 years, Prestonwood has essentially copied what was working in other churches. They installed a multi-million dollar technical system of lights and lasers. Uh, They transformed a very traditional worship facility into a very um, modern facility, kind of. They didn't plow the pews, so it's like half traditional and half modern. They installed a whole bunch of LED walls, and uh, they really just said, these are working in other churches, so let's just change the face of it without really understanding who we are and what's going to work for us. And that to me was a, that was a death nail (laughs) for, for them. Uh, it, It will continue to drag down their numbers more and more because they can't, they can't play in those markets like other churches can to use those terms. Uh, they don't yeah. have a young hip pastor. They don't no. have the congregation uh, that's young and hip. They're not in an area where, where that really fits with the folks who are around them. Add to that what churches often do in that situation when metrics start going in the wrong direction, yeah. they go back to the glory days. So they're like, this thing worked 
10 years ago, let's double down on that thing or on those things. Well, yeah. it may have worked 10 years ago, but it's certainly not going to work today. Times have changed. People have changed. You've changed. And I think that's what's happening with Dallas Christmas Festival. They are doubling down on things that once worked in order to try to keep the ship afloat. And it's going to be the millstone that really <coughs> increases the speed at which the attrition happens. And uh, it's kind of it's sad to see. <laughs> so that's why in these situations, I always encourage churches, you've got to be radical about identifying new areas that people are not are not speaking into. You, you've got to find new ways or, or new holes that people aren't being ministered to in your culture and then invest all of those money and all those chips and all those resources into that thing or those things and and go from there but it's it's counterintuitive it's the last thing churches want to do and frankly it's most churches aren't aren't willing to do that uh either leadership or the congregation just isn't, isn't willing to change at that level and so this is why churches die and new churches pop up yeah um i mean that's good i think that's a problem uh most churches get that right you well, what do most pastors do? We see a church down the street or across the country doing something that seems successful, and and then we we copy it, and it's not part of our culture. It's it's uh, not part of who we are, what we're gifted at, and we just don't do it as well. Um, and then, or it's just not a fit even for the culture in which we live, right? Um, I, I'm sure there's hundreds of pastors now that are having a vision for their own little Christmas festival, like Preston has done because they got so many people and it went viral. And how many people are going to be doing drummers from the rafters next Christmas, you know, and please hire, <laughs> please hire a company to do that for you. <laughs> yeah. and don't, don't put Jim Bob in the back with, you know, <laughs> you know a system. fail videos all over the place next year, please. Uh, <laughs> But that's what we do, right? Like we all do that. Um, and I, like as a pastor, what I've learned over the years is I, I'm who I am, right? I'm, I'm who I'm. I can't be Kevin Young, and you can't be Kevin D Young. <laughs> <laughs> I could be close, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like we're just who we are, and so we have unique gifts, and and so we've got to figure out how we can bring those gifts to bear in our yeah. communities. And in appropriate ways that reach the community. And we have to learn our communities. We have to know what's going to reach into the market that's there of yeah. folks that need church in their life. So, Well, and if I could encourage, I mean, congregations, individuals in churches, even if you're not in leadership, this is something that you can do. Encourage your pastor and your leaders to dream. Uh, encourage them to 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 think of radical new things that the community or the congregation may look at and say, that's absolutely crazy. Encourage them, encourage them to do those things, to think those things, to dream those things, and then support them, try mm -hmm. them, you know, take, take the risk. Um, it, it's better to risk something and then it fail than to double down on something that worked 10 years ago that has no chance of working today. Um, if, if congregations could 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 get out of that fear mold and and truly be willing to risk and, and try new things and change, um, we wouldn't see as many stories like Prestonwood. I don't think. I hear you. That's that's right on. Um. So shifting gears a bit, this will be a big shift. But um, it's one of those days, so, right? Potpourri. It's just yeah. So whatever, whatever's on Matt's mind, let's let's do it. What's up? Well. Try to try to bring in, uh, so marriage. Marriage has been a big topic of discussion. Uh, yeah, passed the Respect for Marriage way. Act, right? So yeah, uh, lots of lots yeah. of conversation about that. What it is, what it isn't. It, yeah, and to me, you can't even avoid it. Really, it's just on the top top of people's minds, and um, even if you make a post not not even connected to that, people want to talk about that. Um, so. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that whole deal? Uh, well, I don't know if you were wanting to talk about anything specific about marriage, but one of the ones that has been kind of 
under my skin the last few days is when people will say uh, that marriage is defined by God or um, that that marriage rolls out of faith or, or religion. Um, that, that just doesn't really stand up to biblical scrutiny, let alone cultural, <laughs> historical scrutiny. Uh, you, you look at marriage in in the Bible and, and none of it looks like anything like we have today, especially in a patriarchal society. Uh, you look at the Old Testament, especially in relationships and, and marriage. And all, I mean, it's it's a mess. You know, do a, do a search on what biblical marriage looks like and, and your Google feed will. Uh, you're going to be surprised what the Bible suggests in some places is uh, is marriage. Uh, you know, the passages that we use to support it. Uh, it's um, it's not a home run. <laughs> uh, those passages, most of them aren't even a base hit. When, when it comes to when it comes to marriage, it's not it's not why they are there, but we have taken them to mean that uh, to mean very specific things about marriage because we're we're grasping at straws and feel like we need it. Now, I, I don't want to say that there's not um, there's no ability to define marriage. I don't want to say necessarily that uh, God doesn't have an opinion on it, but I, I think that it's one of those topics that we have to. Um, Dogmatically, when we're using the Bible, we have to really, I think, hold hold loosely um, and gently to, to what we say about it, because we've we've really been wrong in the ways that we've utilized the Bible uh, to support or condemn things. And um, <laughs> our modern idea of marriage uh, doesn't really come from the Bible, and. Uh, <laughs> I think admitting that what? is, is uh, I, I think it, admitting that is, is the first step to, to recognizing that um, it's like salvation, like praying a few magic words doesn't save a person. You know, there, there's no like hocus pocus, pray these 10 words and voila, you're avoiding hell forever, no matter what you do. And if you don't mean them, then you were never like the same as with marriage. Like, I, I think there's no like magic hocus pocus when you say I do. It's so much deeper than that. Um, we view marriage as more or we should view marriage as, as something that's much deeper than it being contractual. But the way that we talk about marriage, the way that we utilize the Bible to define marriage essentially turns it into something less than than. Than what than how society treats marriage, uh, we're we're projecting onto them our own issues. Yeah, I mean you hit it. And I don't know if that was at all what you were. I mean, yeah, to, no, to talk exactly. About with marriage, exactly. But. Like, because uh, you know the the plain and clear. Uh, the next couple of topics I want to talk about today, like the, it's it all is connected back to how you read the Bible, and it's 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 fascinating to me that the plain and clear folks, you know, they're all up in arms about this. Um, you know, that our country's being ruined, our religious freedoms are being taken from us. And it's like, what? Um, when did we have like the ultimate on what marriage is? And, and really, you've read the Bible and you think that like the biblical view is only what we've kind of deemed it to be over the last, uh, you know, couple hundred years here in America. I, I and then where do we get off like thinking that we are going to make it illegal for someone else who has a different view of what marriage is? Like we come here, we, we say we want religious freedom, but we're going to take the religious freedom from other people. <laughs> like it just makes no logical sense to me. Like, and they're all up in arms. David French is making that argument pretty strongly um, in the public arena. Um, through articles in various ways and it he's right like he's completely right like like we can separate what you think biblical marriage is away from like what the law says marriage is in our country um yeah and, and yeah in the bible let's just be honest the bible endorses and god uses and works through polygamy right um 
if you're going to look and, and write a dissertation on a biblical marriage, like you have to include polygamy in that. You have to. Um, I can see our Mormon numbers like increasing yeah. as you yeah. as you speak in the in the counter. <laughs> but no, I, I think you're. I think that's true, and you know. <laughs> Why, why do we care about defining marriage? We care about defining marriage because there's a group of people that we want to keep out. And when the Bible talks about marriage and gives any definitions or clarity to what marriage is, it's not the who, it's the what. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you want to define marriage biblically? 1 Corinthians 13 is your definition of marriage biblically. It's what love is. Uh, it's, it's how you treat each other. It's, it's living in a relationship with somebody else that, um, is, is a better way of living because of your relationship with God, where you, you treat them in the same way that, that you treat God and vice versa. It's not biblical marriage, which I hate that word. It's like an oxymoron. Um, biblical marriage is, is, is not the who it's the what. And any passages that we've tried to make into the who is eisegesis, is reading into what the texts in those places are actually trying to talk about. That's a great point. Um, yeah, the, the the Bible, yeah, points us to love. And and let, let's be honest, like what, you, and you're completely right, we're just trying to keep a group of people out. Like, bottom line is you're homophobic like like when when you try to define marriage just between a man and woman in our society they're the only ones that have a legal right to be married you're you're homophobic you, you don't want homosexuals to have the same rights that you hold as a married couple and all it is 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 the legal the legal aspects of it like um they're not even they're not saying that churches have to participate in this like you, you pastor if you believe in marriages between a man and woman you pastor can continue to do that all that you want um that has not changed and it will not change in our country and uh, the fear mongering that, that that's changing that that now pastors are going to be forced to do this uh, you know we were in a discussion with some of our friends about it and that came up and and honestly, there's no legal ramifications, but yeah, maybe the culture is going to change uh, where you might look like the a-hole uh, for believing that. Um, I don't necessarily think that's such a bad thing. I like the fact that our culture is becoming more loving and caring for, you know, our, our, our lesbian and gay friends. Um, so, um, yeah. People just don't want, they don't want to look at it. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, it is about being homophobic. It's about using my religion to control you. And the reality of the situation is I just I just don't want to look at it. I don't want to be confronted with things that I don't that I don't like. And I'm using my religion in order to try to support and endorse that. And I'm just thinking you don't want to see the world like you don't want to see. <laughs> you, you don't want to see the people who God has placed around you to like, I just, I don't understand that mentality that I don't want to see you. I, I don't want to see how you live. I don't want to see how you think. I don't want to see anything that, that confronts me in ways that cause me to have a gag reflex or destruct. Really, really lock yourself in your house and don't come out and turn off the TV and cut off the internet. Like, this is about living in community and living in the world is, is engaging and confronting and loving people who disagree with you, but also loving people who you greatly dislike and still affirming them as human beings and as children of God and as being worthy of love and being worthy of being allowed to live their life. Mm. Amen. Gets yeah. Under my, gets under my skin a little bit. Yeah. You're right. I mean, like, well, you're going to be allowed to marry horses next. Shut up. <laughs> really? Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yes. Go for it. If that's what you want to do, go for it. If that's, if that's your definition of biblical marriage, fine. Yeah. 
if that's if that's what it takes <laughs> for you to let you know Jim Bob and Dale get married to have a piece of paper like you have, go marry your horse. Yeah. Um, I just don't want to know about it. Well, it's also a fear too. Yeah, of of losing um, patriarchy. Yeah, it's about power. It's, you know, because they they want power and they want. They, all these folks want women to submit. Uh, yeah, it's control or be controlled. Yeah. It's, so how, you know, because I see the world through the lens of who's in power and who's not in power and who's able to make, who's able to decide how, how the world works and who isn't. Um, because I see the world that way, I assume everybody sees the world that way. So it's kill or be killed. It's dominate or be dominated. Um, like you said, I it's, saw. It's, it's, it's systemic of patriarchy. Yeah supremacy i saw something funny the other day is um i forget where i saw probably on twitter where or maybe i just dreamed it i don't know but there there was an argument made to ted cruz about um men getting a vasectomy by the time they turn 50 or 60 or something like for forcing men to do that so that they stopped uh you know making babies and uh, he's he's basically like no one can can you know control my body and make a choice for my body. <laughs> Did he say it with a straight he, face? <laughs> he like walked right into it, man. Uh, so great. Um, yeah, it's all, let's be honest. Most well, all most all po- politicians are uh, have their views to to remain in power. Um, they don't actually, I mean, they might believe in those things, but they perpetuate them, um, to keep their power. And then they, you know, want to connect them and co-opt them to scripture so that the Christians and the church, their base, uh, will follow them. Um, well, and I think, you know, biblical. the, can you make this argument legitimately without your faith? So, you know, when it comes to gay marriage, let's let's take away the Bible, let's take away your faith, and then let's say, make this argument for whatever you believe without using the tenets of your faith. And if you can still make the argument and it be valid without your faith, then it may be a valid argument. But if the only hinge that you have is, is your religious book, um, it becomes exceedingly difficult to impose that upon other people by, by use of the state. Um, for instance, with Christian nationalism, we've seen that with the latest book by uh, Stephen, what's his name? You Wolf. Know, Wolf, yeah. Stephen Wolf's book essentially uh, makes an argument for Christian nationalism apart from, apart from religion, you know, bases it on um, ethnicity and, and racism and, and, and unifying of, uh, of, of culture staying together rather than, rather than mixing. Uh, and he's, he's getting destroyed because the argument for Christian nationalism for not just, just doesn't stand up, um, unless, <laughs> unless you think that, that you need or have to have a religious context in order to do it. And so, uh, even the religious people are, are trolling him over it because it just, it doesn't, it doesn't hold water. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me logically. Um, but, um, yeah. So, um, kind of along with that, the, uh, plain and clear readers of the Bible, uh, recently have, um, told me and you and all of us that we are sinners if we don't worship on Christmas Sunday. Have you seen this? A plain reading of scripture requires you to worship on the day that is not Jesus' actual birthday. Can you point me to the chapter and verse on that plain reading? <laughs> I've been called so many names this week because we People draw worshiping. battle lines over this, even oh, in churches. Yeah. You know, over uh, best friends on every other issue, but I, I shouldn't be shocked, but I'm shocked, honestly, at at the fight over Christmas Day. 
services on su- because it's on Sunday, right? Um, yeah, because people have opinions. Next year, they're not going to be arguing to worship on Christmas Day. Let's, no. Yeah. Oh, no. no don't, don't, <laughs> don't you dare schedule a worship service on my Christmas Day. <laughs> Except for this year when it falls on Sunday. and Sunday. And uh, we, we uh, yeah, I just, I mean, they're all out there. It's all the conservatives. Um, I'm, I was laughing because it's like, I was telling my wife, Kelly, last night, I go, I, I don't really see myself as like necessarily progressive or liberal or whatever, but it seems like every decision I make, it, it's if the little on the conservative side, this is just like a small decision that I decided, you know, months ago without any really research into the culture, just it was really practical for us as a community. Everybody seemed to be on board with it. Okay. We have online service only on Sunday on uh, Christmas Day, and man, that's the liberal view, I guess. All the conservatives are like, "You have to worry about Christmas Day." <laughs> oh man! <laughs> you know, the further right you move, uh, the 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 more things that were once right now seem left. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're if you're if you're on the edge everything is left of you you know if you're on the edge of the other side of the sheet of paper everything is right of you i you know i think i think this is the church's fault in general for years and decades of of teaching of, of bad teaching about the church and what the church is and and why the church is there you know we've spent our time um, imploring people, forcing people into into the doors, teaching them that when the Bible uses the word church, that it's talking about you know a building, you know using Hebrews as a forsake not the gathering of ourselves, which is a totally an, an errant reading of that text and what it's trying to what it's trying to say. In fact, it's, it's saying the opposite of of the way we teach it. But we've spent so many years doing that theology and those theologies bad that now we come to this day and. You, you can't reverse it. Yeah. Um, you're right. I mean, that's the issue is like, if, if you have a view of gathering for worship as in, you know, as in my view, biblical where, yeah, don't, I mean, it, don't, don't forsake the gathering. That's great. We should be gathering where two or three are gathered. I mean, but you can gather in your home with your family I mean, I know every Christmas day with my family, we have a little worship service as a family before, uh, as the day begins, like we are gathering and worshiping Jesus in our home. And yeah, I think we have replaced the church, the word church as the gathering of God's people, because that's all it was. Ecclesia literally translates as the gathering Church is not the building that I'm sitting in right now. You, to go to church, you do not have to come to this building. You, you do not. And you don't have to come here on Sunday. Nowhere does it say come on Sunday. In fact, one can make a pretty strong argument that the church, early church, gathered every day to worship together. Um, so if you want to like go back to the beginning, all right, we could do that. So where's your daily gathering <laughs> um, with God's people? Uh, obviously, there's reasons Sunday became the day that we primarily worship, um, but it's not biblical. It's it's not like commanded. What's commanded is, yeah, we gather together, and there's lots of ways you could do that. Um, yeah, but even some we- folks. I've seen that believe that, right? That I, I know because I've taught material teaching that are still like, oh, I can't believe people aren't gathering on Sunday morning, you know, for Christmas Day. It's just, it's just weird. But yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with it. And no. I, I understand, you know, for a lot of people, they they want it. Um, and for a lot of people, they need it. You know, they, they want it's it's great. They they don't have anywhere to go or, or anyone to be with or. And that's, I'd like, I, I totally get it. I, I don't get the dogmatic, it has to be this way. Um, it's just, it's not defendable. Biblically, yeah. it's not defendable. Practically, um, historically, it's it's not defensible. And, 
you know, at the end of the day, I think it's really we, we, we like arguing a lot of times. And this is something to argue over and to and to separate people. And frankly, it's an opportunity for people to um, say, I'm better than you. It, it's a <laughs> it's it's a way for a group of individuals to look at others and to say, um, you are less holy, you're less committed, you're less Christian than I am because why would you not offer an in-person service on Sunday? So it is really this um, this broken mentality of I'm better than you because I do this and because you don't. And that is, um, that really goes to the heart and the core, I think, of a broken faith um, whenever, whenever that happens. You know, holding it, not holding it, thinking somebody th- should, thinking somebody shouldn't, okay, whatever. But when it moves to the point of, you're out of line spiritually because you don't, uh, you're, you're, you're telling way too much about what's going on on the inside of your heart. If that's, if that's your position about other people, that's just me. No, you're right. That's exactly right. Uh, we love to create an in out society. Um, and this is another way to do that in the church, especially with all the different church battles back and forth. This is a low hanging fruit one to come out, I'm holier than you and it's unfortunate. And I, I was just thinking like I've been to church on Christmas day before when it's not, even not on a Sunday uh, because there's a um, in Princeton near us here, they have every, every Christmas day uh, they have a ecumenical uh, service at the Princeton university uh, chapel uh, that's ran mostly by the, the Episcopal faith. Um, but, it's one service and I, I've attended it. It's beautiful. I'm guarantee you in most communities there's something like that going on. So if you're really passionate about it, um, yeah, go no, and I think that's a good point. I think the question, the question should not be, what do you do yearly, um, on Sundays? I think the question is, what do you do yearly on Christmas day? If you have a yearly annual service on Christmas day, have your yearly annual service on Christmas Day when it falls on Sundays. If you do not have an annual Christmas Day service in those years where Sunday falls on Christmas Day, I don't think you need to feel compelled in any way, shape, or form to add a Christmas Day service even though it falls on a Sunday. If Christmas Day services are not your rhythm, don't do that to your people. They're not used to it. Yeah. And I think that's the argument like don't shame people because they have a different tradition than you on, on, on Christmas day. Um, yeah, I think we said that. Well, that's why we made the decision. We made the decision because our, my, my family, our music director's family, uh, is young. You got young kids. We got lots of fun Christmas morning traditions and yeah. it's like, let's, uh, you know, well, Let's people just don't do it understand. Yeah, people don't understand all the things that pastors wrestle with on that decision and all that they have to take into account. Um, and it's a lose-lose situation. You're, you're going to have people who vocally dislike it no matter which way you go. Uh, yeah. So at the end of the day, pastors have to take into consideration all the variables that are unique to their congregation and their situation and make a judgment call. And frankly give your pastors a break no matter what they decide grow up <laughs> grow up and it's not like we're you know i mean not, grow up it's not like we're not, if, yeah. if you're gonna make a deal over this grow up <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm sorry but grow up yep argue over sanctification or the doctrine of election <laughs> this isn't Every, everyone's having christmas eve services <laughs> you're still celebrating it and worshiping it and the jewish reckoning christmas begins on sundown the night before anyway so your <laughs> your, your christmas eve service is technically still on christmas day by jewish reckoning that's true i like it in fact jesus was likely born before midnight on the 24th or whatever day it was on so you're celebrating on the 25th but he was born on the 24th you know the shepherds had to have time to receive the message and find where he was before daylight broke so it's not as though jesus was born at 2 or 3 a.m you know they wouldn't have they wouldn't have had time for all of that to happen so maybe it happened uh your christmas eve service counts 25th and the 26th maybe illegalist 
<laughs> Maybe we should be having worship on the 26th. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, oh, yeah. Man. yeah, it's legalism. Yeah. It is, it is legalism wrapped up in, um, it, it, piety. It is legalism wrapped up in false piety. Um, and it speaks to the spiritual maturity, I think, of, of people who really want to make a big deal out of it. Um, that they, again, that's just that's just that's just me. <laughs> oh, come on! Love it, uh, Grinch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you can tell. You can tell. I've 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 fought these battles over the years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, our I was at a previous church, and and so my pastors, our board, like basically forced our our lead pastor to do Christmas service on Christmas morning, and he told the staff that they didn't have to. Uh, like he was so passive aggressive about it. He told a, a whole staff we didn't have to be there. But so he was he was good about that. And so he showed up and he just preached the same sermon that he preached uh, the night before at the Christmas Eve service. <laughs> Had one guitar to play a couple carols and then he preached the same sermon. And then that was it. Um, very passive aggressive. So um, I enjoyed that. And I was thankful he gave us the day off. But, um, yeah, so David, uh, the naked pastor, I forget his name now. Um, David, yeah, David Hayward, Hayward. Um, he's, he's, if you guys haven't, I mean, I highly recommend going over to his page, uh, the naked pastor. Um, he, he might challenge some of your, might yeah, challenge some he, of your thinking. He's. But he, he did a beautiful, I, I really, I kind of want to buy this uh, print, but, um, you know, it's it's the manger scene, and Kevin, you can probably pop it up post-production here. Uh, so if we're not broken, why did, did you come? And then baby Jesus sits up and says, to tell you you're not broken. Um, I just think that's a beautiful message of Christmas. Um, I saw, and it, it, it and juxtaposed that with, the neo-reform, very conservative folks, uh, you know, Vody Bakum, a quote from him has, has been going around and says, uh, do you, he says, do you know it was his mercy that woke you up this morning because his judgment should have killed you last night? Um, it's just so sad. Like Jesus did not come to kill you. He did not come to condemn you. In fact, I mean, I could give you lots of Bible verses where he says he doesn't come to condemn, right? He came to tell you, you're not broken. That's the reason Jesus came. And I get sick of this. And I posted that, like, Bacham quote, and then I'm going to respond today to some of the comments back. It's just, well, God says this in the Old Testament. Well, God also says that if you if you masturbate, you should be out taken out back and stoned, right? Or um, if, if uh, it, when a woman's going through her period, she should sleep outside the house, the camp. Um there's lots of things in the Old Testament that is that is said that we don't listen to anymore. But also, um, when you read the Old Testament, you know, and especially if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, you know that that God is like Jesus. That God's story, the way He was presenting the story, um, was I'm going to send my Son to show you who I am like. And you have to once you have Jesus. You have to go back into those texts where the Israelite people were saying God is smiting these people and read them through the lens of Jesus. I don't think you can then read them the same as if you're not reading them with Jesus. Um, you have to read them with Jesus. And so I think part a lot of it's our hermeneutic, and we talked about this in previous episodes, but it's just so sad. When you look at Jesus, do you really see Jesus as one who, who came to, that he's just holding back killing you? And that's the message a lot of folks are going to preach this this Christmas, and it saddens me that 
you deserve to die and Jesus came to kill you. Um, but he's going to kill him, but God's going to kill him, Jesus first before he has a chance to kill you. And if, and if by some small chance, the Holy spirit regenerates you, um, then you'll be okay and you won't be killed. Um, so trust in that God. Um, it's a very pagan view of God. It's, um, actually you look at, N.T. Wright's done a lot of research on this, and so go read some of his work. But uh, he he shows and Art makes very compelling arguments that 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 was a predominant pagan view at the time um, uh, throughout history uh, of of an angry and retributive God, the Zeus-like God who who will smite you and and come down on you if you don't listen and obey him. Just look at how Jesus interacts with sinners. Look at how Jesus interacts with with Judas look at how he interacts with the um, you know the prostitute uh, the tax collector who's swindling money from others uh, look at look at how he interacts with them and so he's not coming down on them he's not smiting them he's not killing them he's loving them he's caring for them and, and that's the judgment of Christ the judgment of Christ this is how I explain it so um so a couple of weeks ago, I was at a friend's house and they have this huge German shepherd, right? It's still a puppy. And so, you know, what? if you have a puppy, you know what they do. They they get into things, they do things they shouldn't. So we're all out in one room. And so a football game I wanted to watch on, uh, was on in the living room. So I walked into the living room and their German shepherd puppy was in there ripping a pillow apart, right? At it, just gnawing at it. And... I said, Maui, you know, and Maui's just froze, you know, and he, he doesn't make eye contact with me. Right. He's like looking away and I, I lean over to make eye contact and he slowly looks at me. I go, Maui, are you supposed to be doing that? And Maui slowly backs away <laughs> from the pillow. Right. And and then I give Maui a hug and the dog knocks me over because it's so massive and we, we're playing. And, and, and to me, that is the judgment of Christ. When we're in God's presence, like we stop, like we lay at the feet everything that we are doing that's like we know is sinful. And what Jesus does is he, he, he takes it, he takes us, he gives us a hug, he plays with us, he, he forgives us. And then we go and sin no more. As Jesus says, go and sin no more. Like when we're in God's presence, that's a judgment. And the judgment is God's love. Like if you look throughout all of scripture, the way Jesus interacts, it's always love. And in his presence, like, like our sin is revealed and it's hard, right? In that moment when that dog was like, it, it was hard for that dog to give up that gnaw at the pillow. And it's hard for us when we're in, when we're in God's presence like that. But he, he never wants to kill you. He never wants to condemn you. He only wants his judgment to, to overwhelm you with love. So kind of my rant today, because I've just been seeing that. I know that Christmas message is going to be out there of, the, of God's, you know, God's wrath, God's anger. Um, well, yeah, they, and, I uh, mean, everybody, everybody wants to rush to, to Easter. You know, I, I, can't, I can't hardly go to a Christmas performance or, or prayer or church service in evangelical space where the minister or the person who's doing the prayer isn't pushing aside the birth of Jesus to get to the cross. Um, and that's not for me to devalue the cross in any way or, or Easter or the passion or the resurrection. But, um, I, I think that a lot of what I hear when that happens is a, a rushing to judgment and, and a rushing to, um, punitive, um, discipline, you know, from, from God, because we simply just can't sit in the joy and love and hope of, of God. Uh, it's, it's, it's weird that it's more comfortable for many of us to sit in God's judgment than it is to sit in God's love and to rest there, uh, which is, I, I think a big reason why we can't just sit in Christmas without rushing, um, to the crucifixion. And I think you really hit on something I've never thought of before, but it just made every puzzle piece in my head fall into place. This idea of a, a pagan spirituality, uh, a viewpoint of God that is is not 
Christian and is not really Jewish either, but is from outside of both of those things. And, you know, I, there's a whole lot of interpretive and hermeneutical difficulties when we come to the problem of, of evil and who God is and grace versus law and justice versus love. Um, I, I understand all of those things, but I, I think a lot of times whenever we see the praising of, of God's um, punishment in the Old Testament of, of acting in, in destructive ways and, you know, destroying nations and, and cities and, and people groups, to me, um, to me, I think that that are the Jewish people. We, we know that they over and again did as judges would say what was right in their own eyes not God's and those sections of scripture and the way it's praised in scripture I, I think is the Jewish people having bought into this pagan idea of a of a God of of judgment and death and destruction rather than what we see in Christ and I think um, if you're like you said if your view of God <laughs> does not match who Christ is, your view of God is wrong. Uh, there's just no, there's no other way around it. Yeah, totally agree. And, and I, Pete Enns did a lot of good work on reading the old Testament correctly. Um, you know, it was very common in those cultures to, you know, Israel in their writings was making an argument that their God's better, right. To other, cultures and their gods and so any culture would write you know if they defeated somebody that god god did that their god smited them even though it was their armies and what they did right we still do that today i got a promotion you know i beat that guy out i beat that that girl out yeah god gave me this promotion yeah Yeah. exactly um so that was that's what was happening i mean god wasn't i know some of the plain and clear people are going to hate me for saying this, but God wasn't doing that. God wasn't telling Israel to write that God did that. Um, they were humans telling a story. And then, I mean, and that's the whole thing is, is I think I just get this image of, of God saying, no, you, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. My son's coming. He's going to show you who I'm like. And that's what happened. Jesus came. He showed us who, what God is like, cause he is God. And we have to, we have to filter everything through that. Lens. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's up with guys like Vody. Um, there, there seems to be an, an increasing need for these people to have God punish the folks who they don't, dis- the folks who they dislike. Like, like I think we, what, what I see so much in, and a lot of it's the reformed crowd, but not just the reformed. Uh, but this whole, you know, God's going to destroy people. God should have destroyed you. He's just waiting to do so. And it's only by his grace that you are able to draw the next breath, the next moment, because he should just totally annihilate you. I just, they're, they're telling on the fact that they have a lot of hate and a lot of bigotry and a, and a lot of um, inability to to accept or love those who are unlike them. And they're projecting that on God. Hmm. Yeah. And it's a scare tactic. I think, I mean, when you look back at this theology, it it really became prominent with Jonathan Edwards. And at that time, Jonathan Edwards was trying to figure out a way to build the church back up. And, you know, he felt it was falling away. And so he wrote the sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it became, that became just this fear-based way of getting people to convert to Christianity or rededicate their lives to Christianity and, and recommit to the system. And since Jonathan Edwards, that's been, you know, these guys, that's, that's their hero. That's where they get this from. That's where it all began um, for the most part. And so it's sad. It really is sad. And so we're going to be scaring. A lot of folks are going to be scaring people in the faith this Christmas and I I'm saddened by it. And Vody, the older he gets, the worse he gets. Um, I followed that guy for a long time. He used to be, you know, one of my heroes when I was in the neo reformed world. Um, I've heard him speak live many times and he, he just seems to be getting worse, uh, and more extreme in his views the, the older he gets. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, it's sad. 
Uh, I hope I know more and more people are coming out against it and, and honestly deconstructing it. And, and for the most part, people in deconstruction, that's what leads them there. They, 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 they're reading the Bible and they see that the, the, the God that they've been taught by guys like Vody and I taught it too in my church and I seek forgiveness, you know, from my former congregations that I taught that. And, um, but then you read the, the gospels, you read who Jesus was and they just do not line up. And then you start asking all these questions and guys like Vody in that world, they don't want you to ask questions because when you ask questions, you're like, this doesn't add yeah. up. No. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's uh, with Vody, you, you, you make a great point about a trajectory uh, of a long walk in the same direction. And a lot of us, I, I know me, you have this ability now to to look over the span of our of our of our Christian walk, like Vody does, and and say there is a trajectory here, and, and there are there are times and moments, obviously, you know, where you had, and I would say the same thing, you know, where I was headed in a direction that um, I kind of had to wake up from and repent of, and say this this is not reflective of what I see. Um, in the heart of God, what I see in Christ or what I see in scripture. And so I need to change. And so all of that to say, I think whenever I look at a guy like Vody and a lot of folks like them is over the, the span of a long walk in the same direction. If that same direction that you're walking in for an extreme length of time is leading, is leading you towards a God of increased and more severe judgment, and where you're becoming an individual of increasing severe judgment of other people, uh, I think you've got to really step back and say, am I really following God? Uh, you know, I think when, when you look over a long walk in the same direction, the Christian faith should be lean, leading you not towards, you know, saying there is no repentance, there is no redemption there is there is there are no boundaries but it should be leading you to a in a direction where you're becoming increasingly more loving and increasingly more like what we see um in the life of christ the, the good samaritan the parables that he told you know the father and the prodigal son the landowner uh you know the the shepherd who goes and looks for the for the one lost sheep and brings him back i mean i think when we look at these stories and these things that jesus told they were told for a reason and they were instructive to us as to what what we should look like and if what you're looking like is more judgmental and your god being more judgmental and severe um i i can pretty confidently say that i think Vody's going to have a a huge surprise whenever he looks jesus in the eyes uh, I don't say that often about many things or many people, but I'm pretty confident to say that if you're leaning more and more heavily into the justice and judgment and law of God rather than the love and the grace and the mercy and the hope of God and Christ, you, you've you've missed the point. Amen. Totally agree. And I hope that message gets out uh, this Christmas more that the love and the grace of God and Jesus, it's a beautiful gospel. It's just, it's just, it is beautiful. It can be very beautiful. 